Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. This is a terrible tragedy and our thoughts and prayers are with Ms. Shen's family. Uh, As a father, I can tell you I appreciate how difficult this is for our community. I know many of you may be wondering if your children are safe. Uh, All I can tell you at this time is that I have full confidence in IHIT's ability to investigate the circumstances surrounding Ms. Shen's death. And I can assure you that the Burnaby RCMP and its officers are working around the clock to ensure public safety. Uh, We have many police resources in place here in Burnaby, as well as additional police resources from outlying areas like Surrey, North Van, Coquitlam, and Richmond. We also have integrated units who are helping us as well. Um, They're working around the clock to ensure public safety, as are our Burnaby officers. Many details into the cause of Ms. Shen's death are currently unknown, but we ask that families have a conversation with your kids um, about safety. It's always good to, to do this with your kids, and we ask that you be vigilant and be aware of your surroundings. For many people, our early teens are a time to express ourselves, to learn who we are, what we like, from the type of music we want to listen to, the clothes we want to wear, the habits and activities that bring us joy. We're no longer young children, but we are also nowhere near being an adult. There is an independence that comes with that age as we seek our own autonomy and identity. In order to foster that growth, we deserve to be safe. In the early evening of July 18, 2017, a 13-year-old girl set out on a walk through her neighborhood. She put in her earbuds and made her way to her favorite park. It was a walk she had gone on many times. She believed that she was safe. She deserved to be safe. But she was not. Tonight we present the senseless and tragic murder of Marissa Shen. And you're listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We are back and refreshed from our January break and excited to bring you all some new cases for 2023. 
Before we get started, we have made some pretty major changes to our Patreon offerings. Originally, we offered three different tiers at three different price points. However, we're all feeling the current economic climate, so we wanted to make our Patreon as accessible as possible. So from now on, we're only offering one tier that includes everything. So for $5 a month, you will get early release on our content. All of our content will be ad-free. You have access to our archived episodes as well as exclusive bonus episodes all for just $5 a month. So if you'd like to get that, you can head over to patreon.com slash tntcpod to sign up and get all those great perks. Okay, enough of all of that. Let's get into tonight's episode. So tonight we are talking about the 2017 murder of 13-year-old Marissa Shen. This is a murder that was incredibly shocking to the residents of Burnaby, British Columbia, and across the country. We had been holding off on covering this case until the trial played out. However, recent events have many people concerned about this trial. So we wanted to catch people up on this case. There is a publication ban that is currently in place, so getting details of pretrial motions and court proceedings is not possible. As a result, we put this episode together using publicly available news articles. We specifically want to highlight an article in the Burnaby Beacon titled Remembering Marissa Shen that really helps the reader to know a little bit more about who Marissa was. As an additional content warning, this episode does deal with the murder of a 13-year-old girl. So this case takes place in Burnaby, British Columbia. Burnaby is the third largest city in BC with a diverse population of about 270,000 people. Burnaby is also a part of the larger Metro Vancouver area. Overall, life in Burnaby is pretty good. There are lots of single-family homes, condos, a giant mall called Metrotown, and several post-secondary schools. Burnaby is policed by the RCMP. Crime is relatively low, however, the long-term effects of the pandemic and the mental health and addiction crisis are starting to become a little bit more visible. A cool thing about Burnaby is that 25% of its land is dedicated to public parks and green spaces. This includes an area known as Central Park. Central Park and its surrounding area are prominent locations in this case. Central Park in Burnaby is an 86-hectare urban oasis with dense Douglas fir trees, maple trees, and cedar trees. There are many walking trails that take visitors to its tennis courts, outdoor swimming pool, an 18-hole pitch-and-putt course, and the athletic facility called Swangard Stadium. The park is located in a densely populated area just west of that large mall called Metrotown. It is bordered by Highway 1, or the Trans-Canada Highway, Boundary Road, and Imperial Street. Along its east border is Patterson Avenue and part of the Expo Line Skytrain. While the park is considered safe, it is not heavily policed. It's just too large. Or at least it wasn't in 2017. Marissa Shen lived in the neighborhood that surrounded the park. In fact, her home was near Maywood Street in an apartment block that looked over the park. She was born in 2004 at Burnaby General Hospital. Her brother Peter was 11 years older than her. Her parents said that they wanted to have Marissa so that if they ever passed away, that Peter would not be lonely and that he would have a friend for life. 
At 13 years old, she had just finished her first year of high school as a grade 8 at Mosscrop Secondary School, located about seven minutes away from Central Park. Marissa lived at home with her parents, uh, who were Mandarin-speaking. Her older brother Peter was studying in China in 2017. In 2017, Marissa was what most people would call a typical teenager. She liked Harry Potter, Japanese rock music. She also loved anime, art, and cosplaying. Her home was filled with art supplies that she used to experiment with her art. She also really enjoyed um, learning how to sew because she was so into cosplaying that she would get excited about seeing an outfit in an anime and then she would be inspired to make those costumes. Her favorite anime was Yuri on Ice, a sports anime about figure skating. Apparently, she got so into anime and cosplay that she often spent her whole allowance on fabric for making costumes. She even contemplated dyeing her black hair white in order to mimic an anime character she was into at that time. According to her schoolmate, Marissa didn't always love school. She was very smart, but sometimes would nap during classes that she found to be boring. She didn't love sports either, but excelled in badminton. This seemed to be a common theme with Marissa. She could be quiet and reserved, but when the topic of her interest came up, she would become animated and talkative. She loved sharing her interests with her friends and like-minded people. Her brother Peter said that they overcame the age difference by connecting with pop culture. The two also spent time going for drives to get burgers or meatballs at Ikea. Marissa, like many Canadians, had developed quite the love for coffee, specifically Tim Hortons. In fact, one of her classmates said that Marissa showed up late for one of her final exams because she just had to have her morning coffee. Another habit that Marissa developed was walking. In the early evening, she would head to her favorite Tim Hortons, grab a coffee, and go for a walk because she lived so close to Central Park, she would often put her earbuds in, turn up her music, and walk through the park with her coffee in hand. She knew the park really well. Perhaps those evening walks gave her a sense of freedom. But it was on one of those walks that tragedy would strike. We are now going to get into the timeline of July 18, 2017. There is a lot of holdback evidence in this case as law enforcement are trying to keep things close to the vest, so some of the details are vague. In July 2017, Marissa was on summer break between grade 8 and grade 9. It was a beautiful summer in the Lower Mainland. July that year had consecutive days of sun with consistent high temperatures over 20 degrees Celsius. On July 18, 2017, Marissa messaged with her older brother who was studying in China. The two texted back and forth and Marissa asked Peter what size of shirt he wore. He assumed that maybe she wanted to buy him something or maybe even sew him something like a new shirt, but he would never find out. We know that at 1 p.m., Marissa was last seen at home. We believe that this corresponds with surveillance footage that I hit released that shows Marissa entering her apartment building. She was wearing the same clothes that she was later seen in. Marissa casually opens the front door with her key fob. She is not in distress. Then at 5 p.m., Marissa texts with someone. This is not related to anything. It just places her alive and well at home communicating with someone. Then, at 6.02 p.m., Marissa is seen on surveillance footage leaving her apartment building. At 6.09 p.m., she is picked up on surveillance footage entering the Tim Hortons located on the 6200 block of McKay Avenue near Central Boulevard. 
This is a Tim Hortons that she frequented quite a bit. She is seen on camera entering the Tim Hortons wearing a black Nike t-shirt with a colorful logo on the front. She has jean shorts and black Nike sneakers on. In her hand, she carries her wallet. She also has wired earbuds in that are attached to her phone. Her phone is in the same hand as her wallet. As she enters the Tim's, she holds the door open for a man wearing a high-vis vest. She's alone and remains alone for the whole time that she's at Tim's. At 7.37 p.m., Marissa Shen is seen leaving the Tim Hortons. This is about an hour and 28 minutes later. Before she exits, she places her plastic iced coffee cup into the recycling bin and her garbage into the waste bin. She then exits the Tim Hortons. At 7.38 p.m., Marissa was seen on surveillance cameras walking along the south side of Central Avenue after crossing at McKay Boulevard. This would place her heading in the direction of Central Park. It was not uncommon for Marissa to go out for a walk around 5 or 6 p.m. She would normally return around 7 or 8 p.m. On July 18, 2017, the sun set at 9.09 p.m. When Marissa did not return home, her parents began to worry. They called her brother in China, and he suggested that maybe her phone had died while she was out with friends. At 11.30 p.m., her parents contacted the Burnaby RCMP and reported Marissa as a missing person. The RCMP took this case seriously immediately and began a search. They started with the area around Metro Town Mall. RCMP were able to access GPS coordinates by searching the location of Marissa's phone. Her phone was indicating that it was in Central Park. It was now dark as the search continued into the park. There was some activity in the park that night as the TV show, Once Upon a Time, had a crew doing a night shoot. Police began searching along the foot trails inside of the park. At 1.10 a.m. on the morning of July 19th, less than two hours after she was reported missing, Marissa Shen's body was found by police in the southeast corner of Central Park. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Her body was later transported to Burnaby General Hospital, where she was born just 13 years earlier. The exact location where her body was located has not been disclosed. Based on the police presence, it was near the Patterson side of the park near a pathway that connects the golf course and the tennis courts. Marissa was discovered to be with the clothing that she had been wearing earlier that day. That's the language that has sort of been going around that she was with the clothing. People aren't stating that she was wearing her clothing or that she was not wearing her clothing. They are saying simply that she was with the same clothes that she was seen on CCTV footage in. Now, while authorities have not disclosed the cause of death, they did determine that her death was a murder. Immediately, the integrated homicide investigation team was dispatched to the park. Multiple agencies worked all night and through the week, collecting evidence and searching for witnesses. On July 19, 2017, British Columbians woke up to the shocking and tragic news that a 13-year-old girl had been reported missing and then found murdered less than two hours later in a city park. Adding to the shock was IHIT's announcement that this seemed to be a random attack. I can say that homicide investigations, as they unfold, new facts become known. And in light of some of the, the investigative steps that have taken place, uh, we're aware of the fact and want to make it known that um, the evidence indicates that Ms. Shen's homicide was uh, a random attack. What I can say is that uh, from the investigation to date, we haven't identified any suspects. 
Uh, to date, we can't identify any other acts of violence that have been reported to the police that can be linked to this event. The family is, um, they're in pain. They're suffering. They're, they're suffering the loss of their daughter, their sister, um, and uh, they're learning to cope uh, in these hard times. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we will talk about the investigation, the arrest, and what exactly is going on with the trial. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Today, IHIT is introducing a website. That has video updates and previously published information into the homicide investigation of Marissa Shen. This website contains new video believed to be the last known time Marissa was seen. This website comes six months after Marissa was first reported missing by her family on July 18, 2017. The Burnaby RCMP immediately initiated a missing person investigation. And at approximately 1.10 a.m. on July 19th, Marissa was found dead in the southeast side of Burnaby Central Park. Her death was later determined to be a homicide and a random act. IHIT realizes the high degree of public interest in Marissa's murder. Marissa was a 13-year-old teenager just about to enter high school just prior to her tragic death. Our investigators wanted one place where the public can access information and any ongoing updates as it relates to this investigation. IHIT is continuing to work with our partners from the Burnaby RCMP to advance this investigation. Our investigators are working tirelessly and continue to conduct door-to-door canvassing of the neighborhoods surrounding Burnaby Central Park. I'm asking anyone with information about the murder of Marissa Shen to please come forward and speak with IHIT. And should you wish to remain anonymous, you can contact Crime Stoppers. And we are back. That was a clip of Sergeant Frank Jang, the former media spokesperson for IHIT, discussing the Marissa Shen case. In this presser, I had announced that they had created a website dedicated to giving and receiving information about Marissa's murder. Before the break, we outlined this case. 13-year-old Marissa Shen was reported missing after 11 o'clock 
on Tuesday evening, on that would be July 18th, 2017. Tragically, less than two hours later, her body was found in a nearby municipal park. Now, she was found by RCMP investigators. While the cause of her death has not been released, it has been classified as a homicide due to a random attack. On July 22nd, a vigil was held at Central Park to remember Marissa. It was attended by friends, family, and community members. While grief-stricken, many were outraged that something like this could happen in their neighborhood. Then, on July 28th, a funeral for Marissa was held at Mountain View Cemetery. It goes without saying that a random attack and murder of a 13-year-old girl in a large municipal park became a very high-priority case for law enforcement. Investigators were deployed and spent an incredible amount of time and resources investigating this case. At one point, there were 300 officers working on this case. Over 2,000 members of the public were interviewed, including persons of interest. Along with the interviews, investigators also engaged with thousands of points of inquiry and tasks. Warnings were also put out into the media for people to be on guard in the area of Central Park and to watch out for their children. In April of 2018, the investigation waged on. Sergeant Frank Jang held another press conference in which he released an offender profile, which had been created by industry experts. I had continued to pursue all avenues of investigation in the Marissa Shen homicide. On July 18, 2017, Marissa was reported missing by her family and was later found dead in Burnaby Central Park. Her death was deemed a homicide and a random act. I had investigators consulted with the RCMP Behavioral Sciences Group to develop a criminal profile of the person believed to be responsible for Marissa's murder. Criminal profilers believe the unknown offender may have lived in the area of Burnaby Central Park on July 18, 2017. Uh, We believe that the unknown offender may have demonstrated any of these characteristics after Marissa's death. So firstly, unexpectedly moved either permanently or temporarily from the area, uncharacteristically avoided the Central Park area, withdrew from social or family activities, missed work or scheduled appointments, showed suicidal gestures or attempts, showed interest or special attention to the media coverage related to Marissa's homicide investigation, and or increased or decreased his or her drug and or alcohol use. I had continues to work closely with our partners, including the Burnaby RCMP. There continues to be a high degree of public interest in Marissa's homicide investigation. I urge anyone with information to please contact IHIT or anyone who may recognize any of these characteristics or behaviors in someone that they know to again, please come forward and speak with IHIT. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can contact Crime Stoppers. It was unclear at this time if IHIT knew just how close they were to cracking this case wide open. Because on September 7, 2018, just five months after this public appeal and 14 months after Marissa's murder, the police made an arrest. In the following press conference, IHIT announced the arrest and indicated that new evidence had come forward. We will speak about that new evidence later in this episode. I'm here today to announce a significant development in the investigation into the murder of 13-year-old Marissa Shen, whose body was located over one year ago 
on July 19, 2017, in Burnaby's Central Park. Since that time, this file has become IHIT's largest active investigation and one of the largest that we have handled to date, with over 2,300 investigative tasks being completed. Based on new evidence that was recently gathered by our investigators, we are able to confirm one person as the prime suspect. What I can tell you right now is that that suspect is in custody. 28-year-old Ibrahim Ali was arrested in Burnaby, BC on September 7, 2018 and was charged with the first-degree murder of Marissa Shen. We still believe that this crime was a random act, meaning that Marissa did not know the suspect and vice versa. Beyond that, as far as motive is concerned and some of the details surrounding our operational techniques in identifying persons of interest or confirming suspects, I am not able to discuss these matters in order to protect our future judicial proceedings. I want to begin by expressing my sincere condolences to Marissa's family. While I understand that there is some relief at the announcement of an arrest, I am mindful of the devastating loss that they have suffered. Since the day of Marissa's murder, the thoughts of everyone at Burnaby Detachment have been with her family, and we hope today that the news helps in your healing process in the weeks, months, and years to follow. To our community in Burnaby, I want to express my gratitude for your patience. Throughout this investigation, Marissa's murder shook our community, and it questioned the safety in our parks. We have been, and we continue, to conduct high visibility patrols on foot, on bikes, and in our vehicles to ensure that everyone can continue to feel safe in our parks. We're dedicated to the safety of our community, and we are listening and always open to concerns that you bring to us. So Ibrahim Ali was charged with first-degree murder. This means that the crime was either premeditated or committed during the commission of another crime, or both. So who is he? In 2017, Ibrahim Ali was a 28-year-old man living in Burnaby, British Columbia. He lived in one of the three-story walk-up apartment buildings with stucco exteriors that are common in the area near Metrotown. His family, which consisted of four brothers, a sister-in-law, and some nieces and nephews, shared two apartments in this building. The building is located less than a 10-minute walk from Central Park and is located just 600 meters from Marissa's family home. According to IHIT, he did not have a criminal record in Canada. In fact, he had just relocated to Canada from Syria in March of 2017. He had only been in Canada for four months before he is alleged to have murdered Marissa. In order to understand Ibrahim's journey to Canada, one needs to understand the climate that led him to immigrating to Canada. This is an important part of this case, as it has been used as a political wedge. So we will attempt to break it down simply here. In March of 2011, there was the Arab Spring, which uh, included political protests in Syria and throughout the region. A strong government response resulted in the start of the Syrian civil war. By 2013, an estimated 1 million refugees were attempting to escape Syria. The world was shocked at the images of human rights violations occurring within Syria, along with images of humanitarian camps and the deaths of people attempting to escape. This was known internationally as the European Refugee Crisis. 
Canada, along with many other nations, vowed to help by allowing refugee claimants from Syria to start a new life in Canada. At the time, the Canadian government promised to resettle up to 30,000 people. Now, there are two types of refugee claimants that are important to this case. There are government-sponsored refugees, which would consist of the 25 to 30,000 people that were brought to Canada by the government. And then there are privately sponsored refugee claimants. These are sponsored by family members or church groups or nonprofits. So in 2013, two years before the Canadian government announcement, Ibrahim Ali's brother was a government-sponsored refugee. He successfully escaped Syria and relocated to Canada, specifically Burnaby, and began a new life. Then in 2015, a community group on Bowen Island started an initiative to reconnect his brother with his remaining family members. In late 2015, Bowen Island residents undertook a campaign to raise $30,000 in 30 days to bring another brother, his wife, and their three children to Canada. This group also partnered with Vancouver's St. Andrew's Wesley's United Church. The group was so successful that they actually raised the $30,000 and an additional $15,000, bringing the total up to $45,000. The group saw this extra fundraising as a good opportunity to bring an additional brother and Ibrahim to Canada. So in January of 2016, the group announced that they would be moving forward with sponsoring Ibrahim as well as the two brothers, um, the one brother's wife, as well as the three nieces and nephews. So just to clarify here, one brother was already in Canada as a government-sponsored refugee. Then the Bowen Island group privately sponsored a second brother with his wife and kids, and also a third brother and Ibrahim. This was meant to be a joyous reuniting of a family who had been separated by war and one of the worst humanitarian crises of our modern day. The Syrian-Canadian Council of BC and the Syrian-Canadian Foundation supported a joint statement issued by prominent members of the Syrian community. The statement condemned the crime, stating, The Syrian community in Canada join their fellow Canadians today in shock and condemnation of the despicable homicide of young Marissa Shen. We also share in the grief and sorrow of her family. Our hearts go out to you. We extend sincere thanks to the police who spared no effort to uncover the identity of the perpetrator responsible for this horrible act and to bring Ibrahim Ali to justice with the full force of the law. At this moment of deep sadness, we earnestly join all Canadians in mourning and hope that this terrible incident won't result in a backlash against refugees. The Syrian community also organized a candlelight vigil that took place outside the BC Provincial Courthouse in Vancouver at 9.30 a.m. as Ibrahim Ali made his first court appearance. Neighbors familiar with the Ali family stated that the Ali's were friendly and appeared to be a tight-knit family group. They would say hi when you saw them in the hallway. A friend of the Ali family stated that they are shocked and shaken by the arrest. That friend described Ibrahim as a calm and respectful man, adding that Ibrahim is a normal guy. He doesn't act weird. He doesn't act like somebody who's done something. The only other details we know about Ibrahim Ali are that he was employed. He was a permanent resident of Canada, and he had no criminal record in Canada. Previous to his arrest, Ibrahim Ali was not known to the police. So in the IHIT announcement, they stated that new evidence led to the arrest. While that evidence is not public information, we do believe that it involves DNA found at the scene. This DNA evidence 
led to a controversial investigation technique that is being dubbed a DNA dragnet. Essentially, a DNA dragnet is when investigators ask people in the general public to voluntarily submit their DNA to be eliminated from the suspect pool. Usually, those people share common traits with the person they are seeking. In this particular dragnet, the investigators targeted men of Middle Eastern descent who lived in the area of Central Park. This would indicate that the DNA found at the scene shared markers with a man with Middle Eastern heritage. This procedure has led some people to call out the ethics of this type of investigation and this type of evidence gathering. The following is from an article written by Sarah McDonald for Global News. The method in which the DNA of potentially hundreds of men of Middle Eastern descent was gathered, which involved obtaining consent from the men involved, has sparked debate over the ethical and moral boundaries of investigations. They did push a lot. They gave me a feeling that if I don't do it, it means I'm hiding something. Zanyar Farhadi, a local realtor who was asked to volunteer DNA, told Global News of the investigators he dealt with. It was very scary because the police came to you, and it's not like they said, you ran a red light or you were speeding. They said, your name came out in a murder investigation. Farhadi joins potentially hundreds of members of Metro Vancouver's Kurdish community who were asked by investigators to volunteer DNA between March and September of 2018. Vancouver-based criminal lawyer Michael Chapre stated, the problem is that people, whether they're educated, whether they're from this country originally, or if they've moved to this country as an immigrant, whether English is their first language, or whether they have legal training, they may not realize that when police ask them to do something, they have the right to simply refuse to do it or not get involved. Forensic experts say the technique of casting a DNA dragnet is legal, but it could raise ethical questions as it becomes more commonly used. It's become a more and more useful tool for law enforcement to use. The question is, is that ethical? explained Steen Hartson, a professor at BCIT's Forensic DNA Laboratory. It's definitely something people should be asking whether it's appropriate or not, and there are pros and cons to both sides. So at this time, it is unclear how the investigators landed on Ibrahim Ali as their suspect. Did he himself voluntarily submit a DNA sample to investigators? Or perhaps one of his brothers submitted DNA, which gave a familial match to Ibrahim? thus resulting in an investigation into his movements on the night of the murder. We do know that Ibrahim became Ihit's prime suspect two weeks before his arrest. Ibrahim Ali had his first day in court on September 14, 2018. He was quiet-spoken and communicated through an interpreter. He did not address the court. He did, however, look back momentarily into the packed courtroom. Outside of the courtroom, a mixture of protests and vigils took place. Some people demanded changes to the immigration system, others cried out for safer streets, while others held a quiet vigil in memory of Marissa and to support the Shen family. Unfortunately, emotions became heated outside with one woman throwing a cup of coffee onto another. The scene was tense. Ibrahim appeared again in court in November of 2018, this time with a new lawyer. His lawyer explained that the discovery process in this case includes thousands of documents and will take a considerable amount of time to review. Ibrahim Ali has remained in pretrial remand and has not been given bail. 
on November 25th, 2019, over a year after Ibrahim Ali was arrested, BC Crown announced a trial date. The Crown decided to proceed with a direct indictment, meaning the case would not hold a preliminary inquiry and will instead go directly to trial in BC Supreme Court. Jury selection was set to begin on September 10th, 2020, with the trial to begin on September 21st, 2020. But as we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic started in March of 2020 and threw the entire justice system into a massive backlog as cases piled up, went on Zoom, or were dismissed entirely. So jury selection was canceled and the court stated that the trial wouldn't start until September 2021. This would be four years after Marissa's murder and three years after Ibrahim's arrest. This would be the start of a trial process that has been plagued with delays. Due to the high number of pretrial applications, a second adjournment resulted in the case being pushed back until January 10th, 2022. Now, as a publication ban is in place, there is no way to know what these pretrial motions consist of. A new date was set, and a jury trial was expected to begin on September 19th, 2022. However, a fourth delay occurred. This adjournment resulted in the trial being moved to January 16th, 2023. This would not be the last delay in this case. On January 6th, 2023, the BC Crown announced that Ali would not appear before a jury on January 6, 2023, as pretrial applications are ongoing. Crown went on to say that a new date for jury selection and the trial has not yet been determined. This fifth delay has raised concerns for many people who are watching this case, leaving many people to speculate that the Crown may be in breach of Ibrahim Ali's charter rights. Section 11B of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects against excessive delays by saying that the accused has the right to a trial in a reasonable time. The Supreme Court has ruled the following about delays. The presumptive ceiling is set at 18 months for cases going to trial in the provincial court and at 30 months for cases going to trial in the superior court. If the total delay from the charge to the actual or anticipated end of trial minus the defense delay exceeds the ceiling, then the delay is presumptively unreasonable. To rebut this presumption, the Crown must establish the presence of exceptional circumstances. If it cannot, the delay is unreasonable and a stay will follow. So this means that Ibrahim Ali's case should have been completed, including sentencing, within 30 months from his arrest date on September 7, 2018. If we add 12 months for the exceptional circumstances of the pandemic, this means his trial should have ended within 42 months of his arrest. This puts the end of the trial to March 8, 2022, almost a year ago. By our calculation, Ibrahim Ali has been in remand awaiting trial for 52 months. This, plus however long the next delay is expected to last, puts him well beyond his charter right to a trial in a reasonable time. In Canada, some defendants spending their pretrial time in custody are given credit for these days at one and a half or two days per day. This time is reduced off of their sentence, so if an offender spends five years in pretrial, uh, awaiting their trial, that actually could add up to seven and a half or 10 years off of their final sentence. 
It should be mentioned that any defendant can waive their right to be tried in a reasonable time frame, but there is no evidence that this has happened. It is also worthy of noting that we did not know if the totality of these delays were from Crown or from defense. The judge presiding over this case is the sole adjudicator as to whether each delay has merit. So what could happen if this case is indeed in charter violation territory? Well, first off, the judge can step in and stop the trial. Long delays can have serious consequences. If a judge finds that an accused has been denied their constitutional right to be tried within a reasonable time, that judge can order a stay of proceedings and dismiss the charges. A stay of proceedings or a judicial stay is the most drastic of remedies available to the court. As the Supreme Court of Canada stated, charges that are stayed may never be prosecuted. An alleged victim will never get their day in court. Society will never have the matter resolved by a trier of fact. Judicial stays are utilized when to proceed with the trial would result in a continued violation of a defendant's charter rights. Now, another type of stay is a crown stay. A crown stay puts the case on hold. Essentially, the Crown prosecutor can temporarily withdraw the charges against the defendant. The Crown can bring these charges back to court within one year of the date that the charges were stayed. But after the year has passed, the Crown cannot bring these stayed charges back before the court. So if they don't try the case within a year of the stay, then the charges are dropped and no trial is held, ever. And the person can never be charged with that offense again. Upon the decision of a stay, the defendant just walks out of jail and faces no further charges or restrictions related to that case. Now, another hypothetical situation is that the defense team for Ibrahim Ali apply for a constitutional remedy under Section 11B. Essentially, Ibrahim's defense team can attempt to pull the plug on this trial and invoke his right to a reasonably timed trial. So far, there are no indications that his defense team has filed these documents nor is there any evidence that the Crown or judge are pushing towards any kind of stay. Ultimately, we are not lawyers and we can't speak to what is causing the delay, but it definitely is worrisome. According to the few Crown statements we can find, the delays are chalked up to COVID and pretrial applications. So the main concern in this case is the DNA evidence. The DNA dragnet that led to Ibrahim Ali has been derided by human rights groups. Was there some kind of legal issue that we do not know about that could place the DNA evidence in jeopardy? If the Crown loses the DNA evidence due to how it was collected, the entire case could fall apart. IHIT did not have Ibrahim Ali as a suspect until two weeks before he was arrested. They allegedly had a list of 2,000 persons of interest from what we understand. He was not on that list. This means that without the DNA collection, there is no arrest thus potentially collapsing the entire trial. We hope that this is not the situation and that this case goes to trial sooner than later. Lost in all of the legal wrangling, the protests, and the delays are Marissa and her family. On the one-year anniversary of her death, Marissa's family asked Sergeant Frank Jang to read a letter on their behalf. 
Here are their only words to the public since this ordeal began. The family of Marissa Shen is appealing for the public's help, for information that could help solve her murder. At this time, I'm going to read a prepared statement from the family of Marissa. Marissa was only 13 years old when her life was taken. It is difficult to express in words the pain of losing her in this terrible way. We were supposed to see her grow up, but instead, we have been deprived of the joy of having her in our lives, and we are left with thoughts of what could have been of Marissa's life. Marissa loved life, and she had a loving family that cared for her deeply. Last summer, Marissa had plans to travel and see friends in China, but those plans never came to pass as Marissa was taken from us on July 18, 2017. At Marissa's funeral, as her casket was being carried into the hearse, her mother's anguish could be heard. No words can ever express that level of pain. The Shen family came to Canada with hopes of a good life, and a better life for their son and daughter. That safety, security, and hope was taken from them by a stranger. Their daughter Marissa was at the start of her life, a young, creative girl with a genuine curiosity who loved laughing with friends as much as she enjoyed her independence. When a 13-year-old girl is murdered in a city park by a stranger, it is a catastrophic failure at all levels of society. The only thing we can hope for is a fair trial resulting in a conviction. This will not bring Marissa back, but it will be a rebuke of this type of antisocial behavior in our society. We would like to thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. There are currently no GoFundMes or public ways to support the Shen family. We will keep you updated if we come across future vigils or support opportunities. This is obviously a very difficult case to hear and to report on, so please take care of yourselves, whatever that means for you. We will see you soon for a new episode of True North True Crime. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe.